Welcome to the Trinity Galewood podcast. Here you'll find live messages recorded during our weekly services at Trinity. We are a community that desires to look, live, and love more like Jesus. We're located at 1701 North Narragansett in Chicago and meet every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Trinity Galewood podcast. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your your word and the direction that it gives us. And I pray, God, that as we jump into another difficult question, may we find uh, life and hope in what you have revealed to us. And may we be so bold to follow its instruction, but also to share that hope that comes from it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Uh, it is exciting to be here with you again, and I just uh, want to first start here uh, by thanking, I know Mark Bussert is here with us uh, this morning, as well as uh, Mark Schultz uh, for preaching the word the last couple weekends, and especially Mark taking on, is Christianity too narrow, uh, such a difficult question that was not intentional that I went on vacation during that time, uh, but he did a fantastic job with that question as well as uh, Mark last week with Jesus being God. And we are uh, in this series called Explore God, where we're looking at seven big questions about life. And, and today is going to seem a little bit strange, because the question that we are talking about uh, will be a little bit awkward for us because normally when you come to church here, you will always, I shouldn't say normally, you will always hear a teaching, a message from the Bible. That's our source of faith. It is our direction. But, but today we're talking on the Bible. And so it might seem a little bit weird, but I have to begin by saying that this is really important for us to look at the reliability of the Bible because it is what drives us, it is what guides us, it's what gives us instruction in our lives. And my hope would be that you would come to see that as well. But to begin, um, I don't know if you saw this video, uh, there was, uh, I don't is anybody a Jimmy Fallon fan by a show of hands? Okay, all right, he's a late night talk show host. Uh, he's in the middle, and uh, this video has been viewed like 25 million times on YouTube, all right? And uh, if you don't know, on the right, that's uh, comedian Kevin Hart, and on the left is this kid, Robert Irwin. He is the son of Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter, if anybody remembers him, all right? Uh, from Australia. He's 14 years old. And it's kind of a late night show tradition uh, to bring out these like animals, right? And then watch how celebrities react to it. And this one, uh, I just rediscovered it. My wife and I were watching it this last week, and it is absolutely hilarious. Uh, in fact, the first animal that Robert brings out is this adorable baby ostrich. And Kevin immediately, as you can see, is like, uh-uh. I ain't getting anywhere near that thing. And, and Jimmy's in the middle saying, like, come on, dude, it's, 
It's an ostrich. It's a baby ostrich. And, and Robert's like holding on to it. It's not that big of a deal, right? And then the next animal that they bring out is a snake. And, and Jimmy like will hold on to this snake. And Kevin is starting to like warm up. The crowd is saying like, hey, dude, come on. Like just hold on to the snake. Robert says that it's okay. And so Kevin has this honest moment. And he says this. All right, seriously. Is there a chance that it could bite me? And he's looking right at Robert. And Robert's response is, well, it is a venomous snake. <laughs> to which uh, Kevin responds, you lost me at well. <laughs> and look at Jimmy's face right when that is said, right? But the next one is just awesome because Robert starts to use some of his tact and he begins uh, by saying this next one is, is a small little animal. He is fluffy, fuzzy, adorable. You're, you're, you're going to want to hold him. He's not all that scary. By the way, he has a bunch of beady little eyes his name is Big Red, and, and Robert pulls from a box a tarantula. And Jimmy, both of them are terrified at this point, but Jimmy holds his hands out. He's holding the tarantula, and, and the response of Jimmy is, is, there, is this dangerous? Can this thing hurt me? And Robert's response is beautiful. He says, as long as you don't breathe on it, you'll be good. And then Jimmy turns his face to the side. And Kevin is watching this from a distance and then beautifully comes over and starts like tapping the desk to freak out Jimmy, right? And you might be saying like, all right, Pastor Dave, I was the kid that played in the dirt as a kid. I loved worms and I'm not scared of any animals. These guys are just absolutely ridiculous. Get over it. It's just some animals. But, but when I watch this video and I think about it, it reminds me that there are many things in our lives that can be beautiful to some, yet dangerous and terrifying to others. Maybe for you it's not animals, maybe it's the fact of like the fear of heights and being on some coaster that goes at some great speed that is just crippling to you. Maybe for you it's the fact of the, the fear of rejection or failure that leaves you to be so anxious that you're so afraid to, to move forward in something. See, when I watch this video, I'm reminded that something that can be so beautiful to some can be so terrifying and fearful to others. And today, we're talking about the Bible. You might be on that side of saying like, oh, I love the Bible. It's great. Every single day I read it. 
And it gives me so much direction and purpose and meaning in my life. And I would agree with that statement. I think that it is a beautiful book, the most sacred book that we have. But I also am aware, because I know of people, and you might be sitting here today, that when you hear the word, the Bible, you're like, a book? No way. Or the fact of like, I've tried reading that thing before, and there's some guy named Matthew, and I don't know who he is and why I should start there. It's super complicated and confusing. Or maybe you also have maybe heard some of those things about what the Bible supposedly is for. Because I know of people who say that that Bible that you see is so beautiful is the same text that's used to promote hatred and war and slavery. What can seem to be so beautiful to some can be incredibly harmful or seen as harmful to others. So today, my hope and my plea would be to be more like Robert Irwin, to be this this kid who's trying to invite you in to this beautiful thing. And I know that it can be dangerous. I know that it can be terrifying at times. But before in, getting into that, what exactly is the Bible? Put your seatbelt on. This is going to be a lot of information real quick, all right? The Bible is a collection of 66 different books. I believe it's the most reliable text that we have. And while it can be hard to understand, it is a consistent story throughout these 66 different books, written in three different languages, split into two major sections, one being the Old Testament, which is before the birth of Jesus, and then the New Testament, which comes at his birth. The last 27 of those books make up the New Testament, and it was written by eyewitnesses, or those who were close to Jesus, documenting his life and the teachings that he had, speaking of his plan of salvation and how his kingdom is here in this place. The Bible is a book of revelation. What I mean by that is that it gives us a new understanding of life and meaning, yet it is also a book that is inspired, breathed out by God. Now, the Not all of the Bible is revelation, and I believe that all of the Bible is inspired, even though there are some minor mistakes around spelling and grammar things. But but the Bible is a rule and a guide for the Christian people. Now, just to be clear on this, the way I would best describe the Bible is that it is 100% written by God, inspired by him, but also 100% written through the hands of people. You're like, dude, you don't get math. Well, well, I would say the same of Jesus himself, 100% God, yet 100% man, it is this mystery that is at play in, at work 
here. Written through the hands of people by God. Now, the question becomes that we're answering today, is it reliable? Can we trust the words that it has to say? And it's interesting because um, this is a great question and has been asked for many years. And uh, the Bible is written in a time known as the time of antiquity. There are other writings that come from this period of antiquity. And to justify the reliability of any writing from this time period, there are three basic tests that we run it through. The first being this bibliographical test, the second being the eternal, and the third being the external. I'm going to take us through these real quick. First being this bibliographical test. In the bibliographical test, what what, uh, historians do is they take, when did the event happen that this text is writing about, and when is the earliest uh, dating of the manuscript that we have that describes this event? And then we look at what's the distance and how many copies of that thing do we have? So to put this in comparison to this time of antiquity, there's this guy Herodias. He's known as the father of history. He lived in 484 BC to 425 BC, the events that he is writing about. The oldest copy that we have of his writings is in the 10th century. That's 1,300 years after his death, and we have eight ancient copies for comparison in this test. The second is a guy named Julius Caesar who wrote a commentary on the Gaelic Wars. He lived in 100 BC to 44 BC and uh, the earliest manuscript that we have of his writing is in 900 AD. We have 10 copies of that writing, so that's about a thousand years difference after his death. And the last, you've probably heard of this guy before, Aristotle, also from this time of antiquity. He lived in 384 BC to 322 BC. Our oldest copy that we have dates at uh, 1100 AD. That's 1400 years after his death. And we have 49 other manuscripts for comparison. And And all historians would say that these three guys and their writings are reliable because of this test. Now, to put this in case you weren't like running with me here, basically in comparison, we're looking at for these guys and seen as justifiable, there's around a thousand to 14 years of difference between the time of the event and the earliest manuscript that we have. So how does the Bible compare to these guys? Well, just to be clean, looking at the four gospel writers in particular, uh, because they're the ones who are teaching us about Jesus, and that's the most pivotal part of the Christian faith. So the four writers of the gospels, the events that happen, happen in 0 to 33 AD. And the earliest manuscripts that we have are Uh, a few decades after these events happen. To be safe, uh, some people will say that less than 100 years. Keep this in comparison that everything else is around 1,000. The Bible has over 5,000 manuscripts for comparison. That when we look at everything else in the reliability of the text from antiquity, the Bible is the rock star 
It's the one that stands out compared to anything else in history. It certainly passes this first test. The second test deals with the internal test. That the writings and the manuscripts that we have, do they, do they make sense? Are they consistent in its message? Because we have multiple manuscripts. Is it saying the same thing? And this becomes really complicated because we get into this conversation about the canon, which is the books that are used to describe, uh, the, the, to compile the Bible. And so, uh, first off, when it came to identifying the stories of Jesus, there were two tests that the ancient uh, early church used to see it, like what was telling the real story about who Jesus was. And again, this is, I'm trying to like breeze through this. If you've got questions about this, please let me know, all right? Uh, but the first one being this, the first test was that in order for this to be an account of Jesus, it had to be written by an eyewitness or a near witness. So something that the early church held to. So if we look at the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who all tell the story of Jesus and his death and resurrection, we know that Matthew and John were close eyewitnesses. They were disciples of Jesus. Mark and Luke were also secondary witnesses. In fact, we read from early on that they were a part of the mission, that when Paul, this guy who had an encounter with Jesus, was planting churches, that Mark and Luke were with him and would hear these stories and later wrote an account of Jesus. But it leads to the second statement that the early church had put into place. They said it had to be in line with historical doctrine. Did it stick with the church? And I don't know if you've heard recently, um, but there's been some discussion around texts like the Gospel of Thomas or the Gnostic Gospels and stuff like that. How did that not get into the canon? Well, it comes because of this right here. We see very early on that writers who were describing the events of Jesus were pointing to Matthew's account, were pointing to Luke, Mark, and John, and saying, these are the four guys that have it right. Anyone else that comes in might be saying some things about Jesus, but it is not the true account of who he was. And so when we look at the canon that we have, there won't be another uh, thing added to the canon. What we have that's underneath your seats and maybe on your phone is a static thing. It is what it is. And it tells the account of who Jesus is. The last here is the external test. And this one I think is just so fascinating. The external test looks at other sources besides just the manuscripts and internally and looks, are there other things that would prove to show that what the text is saying is right or true? And here's one example of this. Uh, for many years, it was thought or said by skeptics that uh, Jesus's death and resurrection could not have happened because his kind of bur burial that, that is accounted for in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John could never have happened in Jerusalem. Because 
when crucifixion happened, which we have documentation that it did happen, that when a criminal was hung on a cross, they were removed from the cross, and this is kind of gruesome, but they would place the body on just a pile of bodies because it was a criminal. They didn't deserve a proper burial. And when you read the stories of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you read of how the body of Jesus was given to family and then he had this proper burial and he rose out of a tomb. And so skeptics would say, well, you know what? Your story doesn't make any sense because we have no documentation that any crucifixions happened in Jerusalem, the place that you were describing. Jesus couldn't have been buried that way until 1968. This is nuts. 1968, there was some builder in Jerusalem. He was taking a bulldozer, and he was bulldozing a, a, a hill or something like that. And, and what they discovered, which is not all that uncommon in Jerusalem because of all the history that exists there, they discovered a bunch of tombs. And in one of those tombs, they found something that looked like this. It was known, it's known as an ossery. It's a bone box that's used in uh, Judaism for burial. That when somebody was buried, they would remove, when, when the bones would just decompose, they would put their bones in this box. And in one of the boxes that they found from that bulldozing event, they found this thing on the right. It was... What is, and if you look on the left, that's just a, a model of what is on the right. But on the right is, is a foot, a bone with a nail through it. And, and, and people started to really look into this. Like, well, that's kind of strange. I can't believe that would be in there. What, what does this mean? Well, they did dating on that, and they discovered that, that that was from 10 to 60 AD, that that was a a foot with a nail through it, and they found a piece of wood as well on the back of it. Probably like removing the person that was on that cross and taking part of the cross with it. Now, if you're not tracking with me right now, what I'm not saying is this. We found Jesus' body, all right? I'm not saying that because that would be not good for Christians, okay? This wouldn't make any sense. But what I am saying is this, is that we, in 1968, can now say with confidence that during this time period, there was someone who was crucified and was given a proper burial. And what that proves is that the stories of the Gospels could happen and be true. And, and this is one example of many more that would go into this question of, is the Bible reliable or not? And, and I'm here to say that, that if you would say that the Bible is is not reliable. I don't believe in anything that it has to say. I would also, you would have to argue that anything else in antiquity also is false and is a lie. 
that you might as well throw out all of history because of the reliability of this text. And you can do that if you want, but I would argue that's incredibly arrogant and something that no one would dream of doing. And so, so the Bible itself is a reliable text, the most reliable text that we have from that period of time. But here's the thing. Chances are, what makes the Bible intimidating or scary or dangerous for you or probably those that you know who do not believe has little to do with bones discovered in the 60s in Jerusalem. I think for most people that I know, the argument isn't around reliability, but it's around what purpose does this text even have? Or, or does it have any cultural relevance today? And so I want to I address those questions here as well today. What is the purpose of the Bible? And what is its relevance? I love the passage that we read here this morning from 2 Timothy, written by this guy Paul. And, and he plants all of these churches, and he's talking to a young pastor. Uh, he writes 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy to this young pastor. And in 2 Timothy, he says this, that you have been taught, Timothy, the holy scriptures from childhood, and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. This is such a beautiful statement. The scriptures were written so that you could receive the salvation, the wisdom that comes from God. See, the Bible isn't some story about you and your life. It is a story first about Jesus and God, the God-man who has come into this world, and it gives us a guide, a rule, and a new way to look at ourselves and look at those around us. But it is written for the purpose so that we could receive salvation. But then Paul continues on with Timothy. He says that all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. So God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Think about that for a second. The text that we have is used to show us what's right and wrong, to, to correct us, and to equip us to do Every good work. But then the question becomes, well, what's the relevance of this? Because it seems like when I've tried reading it before, it's pretty outdated. It seems to be rather oppressive and judgmental. So can we trust its cultural 
relevance. And with that, I want to remind you that I want to take you back to this moment. Robert Irwin holding on to something that can be used in such harmful and dangerous ways. Can it bite? Yeah, it can. And it can be hard to hear some of the teachings that come. But I believe that those are drowned out by the beauty of what it proclaims, by the compassion that it shows. But I don't want to dismiss the fact that it's not sometimes hard to hear. So, so because of that, I just want to give you like three helpful hints as you journey in to this beautiful yet dangerous Bible. The first one is this. The first hint would be to slow down and dig in. Nobody would ever want to be taken out of context. It's just right. Nobody desires to be in a conversation and then have one statement be used to define your position on something. And the same is true for the scriptures, that we can take little bits and pieces of it and say, well, this is why the Bible is so oppressive and hurtful. I would invite you to slow down, to understand the context of what's being said, to know that there's something bigger that is happening and going on. And I'm willing to admit that some people have interpreted parts of the Bible absolutely wrong. And we need to repent of that. We have a history in America that, that used parts of the Bible to justify slavery in our country, and that is evil and wrong. And we need to call that out and say that this is not what it says. The second helpful hint would be that some teachings will offend you. I know this because it offends me at times. Sometimes there are things that are said that are really hard for me to hear and to live out. Great idea, Jesus. Loving my enemies, a lot easier to do in saying than doing that in action. Some things are going to be really hard to hear and might even be offensive to us. But wouldn't it be tragic if we threw away something that was absolutely beautiful over a cultural belief that would be dismissed years later? And, and in fact, I would argue that the argument to stay away from the Bible because it offends you is then saying that you, <laughs> that if there is a God, then he shouldn't offend you. Do you see the weakness of that argument? That makes you God and him not God. There will be things that offend us and will be hard to hear. The third helpful hint that I see in reading is that we need to distinguish between major themes 
and less primary teachings. This is important and also very difficult to do. But, for example, the Bible talks about the person and work of Jesus. It also gives us an explanation in how the church should treat widows. Seriously. Now, one of those two, I would argue, is more primary than the other. The work and teaching of Jesus and what he has done is primary. It is foundational to what we hold to and believe. And if we put the work of widows ahead of that, we have missed really the context of what is being said. We need to spend time understanding the larger primary teachings that are happening. In fact, I love uh, one, one author. He described um, when reading the Bible, and it might be hard to hear, or this distinction of primary and secondary, he says that we need to not create a robot God or a Stepford God, if you understand the movie reference. One that we just create that fits into our mold of what we want him to be. The reason we would never want that is because we know that in any relationship that is beautiful, there will be pushback. Some of you may have experienced that this week with Valentine's Day. It's a beautiful thing, actually, when somebody is willing to say, that is hard to hear. Or I don't know what that actually means. So, so back to Robert. I think it's so beautiful that in this image, you see someone that is holding on to something that, that is beautiful and dangerous for him. And I can promise you that if you take this journey in reading God's word, there will be times that you are like, man, this is the best news that I have ever heard. And there will be times where it'll be incredibly dangerous for you and for me. And so with that, just some simple little next steps. There, some of them are on your message notes that you have right here. I'd love to point you to these very things. The first one is, and I use this personally in my own devotional time, is the Bible app. Does anybody have the Bible app on their phone by chance? Beautiful. It's such an easy uh, app that you can find reading plans. And if you've never read the Bible before, I would suggest beginning with a 60-day plan through the New Testament. That'll be like a chapter a day. It'll teach you the teachings of Jesus and the mission that happened during that time. For the context of what's going on, this website, thebibleproject.com, is on here. And please, Watch that. There is so much detail and so much context to the Bible and what's being said. There are some great videos that you can watch on there. Also, if you're like, man, I really was liking that internal, external, and bibliographical stuff. I want to know more about it. Well, 
That's not just me. That is from a resource called The Bible on Trial, Lutheran Hour Ministries. It's a great video series that you can go and watch and learn more about the scriptures and the reliability of it. But my hope and my intention would be this, that not only would we as a community of people, as Christians, this is our source of text and what drives us in everything that we do. Let me offer this last thing. You are not called to take this journey alone. Sure, you're called to read alone. But reading the scriptures is something that that we need to do as a community of people, holding one another accountable to it, but also letting each other in on this journey. And so if you are so bold to take that journey today, that step, may you do so in letting somebody else in on that as well. And my hope would be that we would see the beauty that comes from what can also be dangerous. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are a God who continues to work in this world, who gives us direction. God, I, I couldn't imagine what, what our lives would look like if we didn't have your word. So God, I'm just so thankful for it, even though when that's tough to say, even when there are things that just make me uncomfortable, I pray, God, as a community of people, that that would lead us into leaning more into you instead of using that as a way to push you out. So God, we need your help. We need your spirit. And we need a community to do that. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed...